Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. I mean, that song is a sermon in itself. Might as well pray and go home. Our God reigns, right? But in light of that, we need to take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to go back to this exposition that we started in July. Opportunity for us to get our hearts back into our study in this great, this great Gospel. I want to start in verse 2 and, and, and just read. Well, I'll start in verse 1. It's simple enough. But we'll read through verse 8, but just follow along as I read the scripture. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the, in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. He was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for for the day and for the encouragement to be mindful that our God reigns. We thank you for your truth and and how you've inspired and God breathed this inerrant and holy authoritative word for our souls. We long to to know it and, and to follow it to trust you every step of the way. And we marvel at our passage this morning, Lord, for you are putting the pieces together of a puzzle of your redemptive history by showing us John the Baptist. And I pray, Lord, that we be able to discern and have the Spirit teach us in ways that will grow us deeper in love with you. And so we ask that you be with your servant. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We find ourselves in a passage that sets the scene for the Messiah. I mean, Mark is like a, a shotgun start. This kind of gospel, he, he doesn't lead much with introduction, but he is saying, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the Son of God, which is a messianic term, title. And he goes and, and points to the, the, the thread it points to the one of, uh, of the Messiah and the, the, the forerunner, John the Baptist. Our God is very clear. 
My prayer for the unbelieving Jew today is, is that they would see the connections of, of all the Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Christ. That's Mark's point. And so to make sure that we get on the same page with God and his redemptive plan and purposes, God inspires the apostle Mark to write in such a way that we can see the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament by pointing to this forerunner. The one that would point to the anointed one, the Messiah. The one that will pave the way for the Messiah to make his appearance. This is Mark's desire. It's for us to get it, to understand without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's writing in such a way so that we as Gentiles, and you think about the Gospels, they're all written to a particular audience. Matthew towards a, a group of Jews to help them understand and fit all, everything together. And you have Mark, who's, who in essence is writing to us Gentiles to make the connections clean and understandable. And so right from the beginning, Mark makes this connection of prophecies in verse 2 and 3. He makes this connection of prophecies that lay the path for Jesus Christ. And here's the beautiful thing about it. We don't have to guess if Jesus is the Messiah. We know Jesus is the Messiah. The one who will bring reconciliation to a sinner, to a holy God, and grant the sinner grace and forgiveness. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of who God said will be the Messiah. And even those prophecies surrounding the Messiah all point to Jesus as the anointed one. Knowing this, Mark wastes no time getting to, to this prophecy that will announce the forerunner of the Messiah. By the way, every gospel mentions John the Baptist. He, he is a significant entry. Why? Because at the close of the Old Testament canon, you, you have prophecy where the Jews in the world is waiting for this Messiah. And they're looking <clears throat> particular, in, and God is so particular in giving that. We'll look at that in just a second. But he's so particular, this is who you're going to look for. One like Elijah. Is going to come and pronounce that the Messiah has now burst on the scene. And if you know your Bible, you know that the forerunner is, is exactly that. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as he is known. <clears throat> Mark writes in, in such a clear, distinct way that, that it, it's very, like you say, linear in, in his approach. He says, Here, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is the forerunner. And here, starting in verse 9, is the baptism of, baptism of Jesus and the way we go. We have to go to the other gospels to get a little bit more clarity about John the Baptist. I think of Luke, who tells us the story of the conception of John the Baptist. And if you remember that scene in the temple where the angel Gabriel announces to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, that, hey, here he comes. The gospel writer John gives us great detail to explain John the Baptist's mission. You get a little bit more color there. But here in Mark's gospel, Mark goes right to the heart of the matter and links the Old Testament prophecies to the forerunner, who in turn, once the forerunner's here, the Messiah is coming. He says, here is the puzzle piece of John the Baptist. And he puts it on the board for us to see and understand that the anointed one is coming. Like I said, he does this by taking the Old Testament <clears throat> prophecy and says, John the Baptist is that forerunner. 
<clears throat> and then two, this is his message. And, and so in these verses, you, you see the pronouncement of the forerunner with Old Testament prophecies fulfilling that. And then you have his message, what he said and what he proclaimed. All of this gives us insight on how to be heralds or ambassadors for Christ. There's much to be learned here. I'm going quick because I got a lot of information for you. <clears throat> but there's a lot of things going on. There, there's, there's something, there's some great insight and understanding. Just in looking and studying John the Baptist, what it means to be a herald for the Messiah, as well as the character of the forerunner. It's very interesting to me, and, and, and you'll note it there in verse 6, that it, it talks about the character of John the Baptist, what he ate and what he wore. And why is that so significant? Because we live in a day and age where often the profession of our faith doesn't match our living. And that's exactly what's going to happen. I'll unfold this here shortly. The preacher gets ahead of himself a little bit here, but it's one of those things where you look at what is happening and, and the heart of John the Baptist and what he is doing. He proclaimed a message that the Messiah is coming. He's coming. He's coming. And so he gives us an example of how he lived, how he lived life and applies it to our own life. Like I said, it helps us understand our own character and how we live for Christ in a very practical way. And it reminds us that it's, it's just as important or equal to the message that we proclaim. You notice that, right? I'll never forget a guy who was a good friend of mine, still is, and we were talking, lives in a different city, and we were talking about our witness. And he was explaining, Bear, I love Christ so much, I've been proclaiming this gospel. I said, that's, that's great, it's what we're called to do. He goes, but people don't listen to me. I said, well, it's not your issue, right? I said, but tell me a little bit of how you're going about it. He goes, well, I go to the bar. <laughs> we didn't have to get very far, right? I said, what are you doing at the bar? Well, we're having a few beers, right? And we're talking about Jesus. I said, well, that doesn't compute, bud. If you're talking about the holiness of God in a place where you're not even living holiness to your own self, then the message and your lifestyle don't match. And, and so it's important to understand the significance of this, not to say, you know, of course, getting drunk is a sin, but why would you go to a bar? If anything, wait outside the bar and wait for them to come out and love them and show them Christ. So let's look at this. The forerunners pronounced in, in verses 2 and 3. Look again with your eyes. We see these prophecies coming out. Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Mark points the significance. And the reason I think he points to Isaiah, he also points to Micah, or Malachi, excuse me. And he, and he connects these two and kind of melds them together. But the greater portion of it comes from Isaiah chapter 40. And so just as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'm sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Like I said, Mark actually takes two prophecies, pointing to the forerunner, the one who will announce and proclaim that the Messiah is here from Malachi and Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 3, is no doubt a cross-reference in your Bibles. 
And I think that you'll see that part of this comes out of Malachi chapter 3, 1, where it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And he ends there, then adds Isaiah to it. But Malachi 3, 1 continues, it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so the Jews were looking for this announcement that God was going to send a messenger that will clear the way to make ready the heart to receive the anointed one. And then in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And that's the beauty about our Lord. You think about it. Every thing, every time that God is moving and doing something, he does it miraculously, and he brings it without a shadow of a doubt that this is my guy. I'm starting to move. I'm starting to do something. And he does it often with signs and wonders to put his stamp upon his message or his purposes. These prophecies all foretold that before the Messiah would come, God would send a a herald, a forerunner, whose responsibility would be to prepare the hearts of the people. He's kind of like, I don't want to say it this way, so I won't won't say it that way. You ever get one of those things where something comes to your mind and you realize, oh, that's going to fall short, so I'm not going to say it. But he would prepare the way for the coming Messiah that he would be sent by God to announce the coming of the Messiah. Scripture tells us that when John the Baptist appeared, there was much discussion about his identity. You remember that in the other Gospels? Who exactly is this guy who is calling us to repent, who is calling out our sin? And many people, as we we see in in verse 5, they're heading out to the Jordan River where he's at. Many believed he was Elijah who had come again. And why did they think that? Well, the last prophecy in in Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses of that prophetic book, verse 5 and 6, it says this, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, your Bible knowledge reminds yourself that that Elijah was what? He never died. He was taken up to heaven. God said that Elijah would come once more before the Messiah would appear. And so the Jews were anticipating that Elijah would come, knowing that when Elijah came, the Messiah, the anointed one, was coming after him. They were looking for that marker. And so when John the Baptist shows up, Roughly 400 years later from the prophecy of Malachi 4, 5, and 6, they were thinking that he is Elijah. The problem is that John the Baptist is not Elijah. He's John the Baptist. Now, what's interesting to me, even so today, Jews have a seat during their Seder dinner, the Passover meal, And they have an empty chair. If you know anything about the Passover, it's celebrating God's grace and overlooking the exodus coming out of Egypt and the passing over of the angel of death. But in the process of the Jewish mindset, they have a chair because they're waiting for Elijah to come. 
They're waiting for him. They're waiting for him to show up. The problem is for the Jew who doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah, they still think he, God is going to send Elijah, but they miss the truth of the scriptures. When John the Baptist appeared, when he came out of the desert and began to preach, the first question he often received is, who are you? Are you Elijah? And listen to what John the Baptist responds. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. You can look at that screen. It says there, this is the testimony of John, speaking of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? And notice the distinction, the prophet, and he answered, no. Yet when Jesus asked, or when they asked Jesus who John the Baptist was, we see this in Matthew chapter 17, in verses 10 through 13, it says there, and his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And this is so key in our understanding and making this connection. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. So also, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. And so Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is Elijah-like. Elijah rightly says, I am not Elijah. Why? Because he's John. But yet Jesus makes the connection for us to say that John the Baptist is Elijah-like. He is one who came and prepared the way for the Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus said this, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit. And this is key too. He's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so John the Baptist was Elijah-like. Jesus points that out very clearly for us in those two passages. He helps us to understand and make this connection. This is what God is doing with John the Baptist. John is right to say that, that, that he's not Elijah, but, but everything he did in calling the people to get right with God prepared the avenue for the Messiah to come. So Jesus says, John the Baptist has come with the spirit and power of Elijah so as to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. And that's so important for us to understand. Why? Because when we look at the message of John the Baptist, we've got to ask ourselves, is this the same message that he's preaching just as Jesus? And we'll get to that in just a second. So John the Baptist wasn't lying when he was asked if he was Elijah, and he said no. Jesus confirms for us that John the Baptist came in the power and spirit of Elijah. Now notice this prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, here in Mark chapter 1, verse 3 makes mention that an Elijah-like prophet will come from the wilderness. Notice where his location is. He is one, the voice of one, crying in the wilderness. And in verse 4, it says, and make this connection, verse 4 says, John the Baptist appeared where? In the wilderness. 
And so Mark is, is and the Spirit is, is connecting these two. He's saying there is going to come a forerunner, one who's going to be crying in the wilderness, make ready for the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then verse 4, he makes that connection real clear. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, this is God identifying John the Baptist as his forerunner, his guy, his prophet who will be this forerunner of the great Messiah. Now, we often look at this location, and there's significant in this. We know what happened in the wilderness when, when, when Israel came out of Egypt. Remember how Israel wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience? until they got right with God. God was teaching that, teaching Israel that they needed to obey, to repent, and to follow his truth. The wilderness was a reminder to them of the path of getting right with the Lord. In the same way, you get this sense that Israel needed this, this spiritual exodus again. Life has happened 400 years since the last given prophet that hit the earth. And so if you look at verse 5, it says, and all the country of Judea was going out to him, going out to John the Baptist, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. That was their reason. They heard the preaching of God's forerunner, and they were pierced in their heart because he was calling out their sins. And you remind yourself exactly, that is exactly what cost John the Baptist his life. What did he do? He called out Herod and his relationship with his brother's wife. And it says that you're in adultery. Of course, Herod backs off that because John the Baptist was right. He was pierced to the heart. But we also know the fullness of that story where Herod's adulterous wife said, please, the king, I'll give you whatever you want. And she wanted John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so this is, is so remarkable for us to see the connection as Mark brings this together for us. But the question is, and this is where I want to drive us to, does John the Baptist's message of repentance get the people right with God? It's a great question, right? And the quick answer is no. But what did it do? Well, the scripture is very clear. It made their hearts come to the presence of the holiness of God. So in turn, they can be ready for the Messiah. What it did is to get people prepared to get right with God. And that is what is key here. Yes, there's a difference in the message that Jesus and John the Baptist preached. And even John the Baptist makes that distinguishedness. Mark, in verse 8, if you look down, I baptize you with water looking to the symbolic nature of cleansing of one of sin and getting right and at the prefaces with God. But he, the coming one, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so there is a great distinction between what John the Baptist is doing and what Jesus does. But let us look at this message that the forerunner proclaims. John the Baptist pointed out people's sin. He was a character, a man of godliness, a man who had holy character that lived in such a way that he called a spade a spade. He called sin, sin. He didn't dance around it. 
He proclaimed the holiness of God and called those in his listening ears to, to, of his voice to, to repent and belief. And so the heart of John the Baptist's message was repentance. We see this in verse 4 when he says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And when the people came to the Jordan River in the wilderness and sat and heard John's message about getting right with a holy God, that brought the people their need to repent. He brought them to the greatest need of every person, and that is to get right with God. And the way you do it is to confess your sins and stand naked before a holy God. When the people came to the Jordan world, they sat and heard John's message of getting right with God. And the people there needed to repent. And he brought them, like he said, to every person's need to realize that they are a sinner and they need grace and forgiveness. By the way, repentance is an acknowledgement of that or an agreement with God that you have sinned against him and that you need a heart change. In the Greek, we know this word to be metanoia in the Greek, and it has the idea of doing a 180 or change of direction. It's a matter of the mind and the heart of doing what is right, turning from your sin and turning towards righteousness. Repentance says, I, I have sinned against the holy God and deserve his just penalty for my sins. King David said it this way in Psalm 51, first four verses of that psalm. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Listen, there's no victimization there. It's just you, your heart, and the sinfulness that it has in light of the light and the holiness of God. He exposes that. Repentance acknowledges that you have sinned, and it is the means to bring you face to face to God, crying out for grace and mercy. It brings down all the high peaks in your life of pride. It brings down all your selfishness thinking that you're smarter than God, that there's some wisdom outside of God. It causes you to admit that you have a heart issue. Repentance takes the corrected places, and just exactly as, as, as Mark tells us here, it, it tells us that, that, that this type of preaching, this type of understanding of your position, understanding where you are with God will make your path straight. We'll make it straight. It makes the rough places smooth. It humbles you. And beloved, when you come with a humble and contrite heart, when you see the reality of your sin and you humble yourself, 
God is there to show up and meet you there. God is there. He shows up at the instant of repentance. But if all you did was repent, you would would never receive what you need most. And that is grace. That is forgiveness. That is God's grace. And this is the biggest difference between John the Baptist's message and the message of Jesus Christ, as we will see in in the coming weeks. How so? It is at the cross that Jesus takes the repented sinner and reconciles him to a holy God. Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, died for sinners so they can receive the grace and forgiveness that their repentance needs. Grace, we understand it, as unmerited favor to the undeserved sinner. Grace is not something you earn, but something that is given. And the only way to receive the grace that you need for your repentance is that you have to come in faith and in faith into Jesus Christ. It's that simple. That simple. Jesus said it this way in probably the most known Bible verses in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. Repentance gets you to in front of the face of a holy and righteous God, and Jesus Christ extends reconciliation, extends grace, extends forgiveness. Let me say it this way. We don't stop short at repentance. We must start there. Repentance must have a companion of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so where the imputed righteousness of Christ can be extended to you. So now that a holy God looks at the repentant sinner and says, there's my son, my son in him. Faith in Jesus Christ makes you forgiven, makes you right as Jesus imputes his righteousness into you. I think about Martin Luther often. I think about church history often. I, I think about what is happening. You think and look at the life of Martin Luther. He, he wanted to get so right with God that he did everything in his own means to repent of every sin that he ever did. But it never brought him to this reconciliating point until he read his Bible and realized, yes, I must repent, but I also must receive the grace and mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That started the Reformation to which has a a continuing effect even today. It is Jesus, Jesus alone that brings you into eternity and into the family of God. He is the one who reconciles you, puts your name in the Lamb's book of life. And this baptism that John and Jesus does, There's even a difference here. How so? Verse 8 says, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is saying that the baptizing that he does is symbolic of your repentance, of a new life, of being right with God, at least at at the doorsteps of that. And then you have Jesus who says, I will baptize you. And it's best to look at that word. Sometimes we see that word baptism or baptizing, we think of the dunking process and the ordinance that the church does. But literally, it's, it's transliterated. It's, it's just immerse. 
And if you have that understanding of immersion of what is happening here, you can get an understanding of what he's saying in verse 8. He says, I will immerse you with the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus leaves, what does he do to every believer? Gives them the Holy Spirit, immerses them in there. So what? Now they can live a transformed life. A life that is, is changed. John's baptism got them prepared to receive the grace, the forgiveness that Jesus will speak about in the coming verses and chapters. John's baptism was an external sign that you have repented, but Jesus' baptism, this immersion, brought you the third person of the Trinity into your soul. I love what the Apostle Paul calls it. This baptism that Jesus brings, it's a seal. It's a mark that you are God's child. Look to the screen. It says Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. He says, in him also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the marking that the repentant sinner who has truly received and believed in Jesus Christ, that he is God's child. That you are God's own possession. In the process of all that, in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life, God gets all the glory, right? That is the distinction between John the Baptist's message and what we will see in Jesus' message. John's message was designed in a role in such a way, ordained by God to be a forerunner, to get people ready for the anointed one, the Messiah. He sets up the redeeming message of grace and forgiveness that Jesus Christ brings, who, by the way, is the only one who can reconcile us to a holy God. I hope you can see the difference. I hope you can see this significant, even in your own life. We do counseling here. We do biblical counseling. We, we look at the scriptures and apply it to our own souls. And often what happens is that the sinner knows his sin, but the sinner doesn't understand that there's great grace and forgiveness. He doesn't take that step and put off his sin and, and live in the righteousness of Christ. That's usually where the rubber meets the road. They come because they understand that they are, have sinned against the Holy God, but you've got to take that extra step and you have to receive this, this grace and this mercy to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What does 1 John 1, 9 says? If you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and righteous to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? The connection of making that step. All that to say, wow, I spoke fast. We got some time left, so I'll fill it up. <laughs> All that to say, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Listen, there is no sin greater than the grace and forgiveness that Christ gives. Did you hear that? 
There is no sin ever committed by sinful man that is greater than the grace of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's one thing to recognize you're a sinner, but it's another to confess your sins and receive the grace that your sin needs. And what your sin needs is Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. And so very clearly, the issue of the heart is to bow to him. To bow to him. I love what the scripture says. It says in verse 5, all the country of Judea was going out to him. Can you imagine? Preacher just shuts up shop by the river. Here comes the city. And he doesn't back off the message. Culture doesn't change his message. He calls sin, sin. And he calls their need to repent. But he also gives them hope that there's coming a one who's going to give them great grace. Remember what the other gospel said about John the Baptist and his pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Submit to Christ. Bow in submission to him. Receive his grace and his forgiveness. Now here's the kicker. I alluded to this earlier. Notice the personal note in verse 6. Why is that there? Why is there a verse on the apparel and the diet of John the Baptist? Which, by the way, I haven't seen anybody wear that kind of stuff. Look what it says in verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. The simple answer to this is that John had not only preached the message to get right with God, to repent of their sins, but he had character to match it. His dress resembled much like the prophet Elijah as described in 2 Kings 1.8. You can look at that up in your own time, 2 Kings 1.8. The way he dressed was a rebuke against the sinful living of the day, of the Israelites. John's dress of eating habits were, was a character, was a testimony that Israel was a nation needing to repent. It pointing to the godlessness in their lives, their need to repent from a sinful culture and, and live a lifestyle that was godly. This was what his apparel was. So not only did he proclaim a message of repentance, he lived the part. He was contrite in his living. He was contrite in how he went about things. And the point here is that John not only proclaimed the message of repentance, but also lived a life that modeled or pointed to this repentance. Now, I'm not asking you to go out and buy camel's hair and go out and eat crickets and, and honey. Uh, God's not asking you to do that either. But what he is asking is the same heart intention behind that verse. Do we live a life that is aligning with the message that we proclaim? I mean, we interact with people, right? You interact with people who say they love Jesus. 
but it doesn't take very long living with them to know that they don't know Jesus? Why? Because of their living and their lifestyle? How often does the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ come across your lips and not your lives? If those two things are not in sync, those that hear your message of Jesus Christ will not believe what you're saying. I'm not talking about works righteousness here. I'm just talking about the message of life that you proclaim that people need to get right with. If you're not living a life that pursues Christ, it, it, your message is in vain. What hope does that person have knowing that you say that Jesus changes my life, but I look at your life and it's just like mine? Your life must match your profession in Christ. I'm not saying perfectly. But obediently, with a desire to, absolutely. There was a preacher by the name of Thomas Brooks, who in the 1800s, late 1800s, he, he had a, a lecture series trying to engage preachers about this truth. Listen, listen to what he says. Look to the screen. And I quote him here. He says, truth through personality is our description of real preaching. I mean, he's going right after the preacher here. Truth through personality is our description of real preaching. The truth must come through the person, not merely over his lips. It must come through his character, his affections, his whole intellectual and moral being. It must come generally through him. Beloved, nothing will, will make our words penetrate more than that which is true in us and come from our heart with total sincerity. If we want to have an effect for the kingdom and for our Lord and Savior, our lives must demonstrate a message that believes what we're saying. That is why verse 6 is there. It's a heart check. It's a heart check. It checks our character in light of what is happening in our own lives. It's important that we, we grasp these things, all these little nuggets that come together in pointing our understanding of the forerunner. What are some of the takeaways? Hopefully you got them. But one of them to remind you is this, that repentance from your sins must be accompanied with a faith in the Savior, the one who atone, can atone for your sins. It does you no good at all if you, all you do is repent. Listen, you need, you need a Savior to save you from your sins. And the beautiful thing about it is that God sends them, right? And his name is Jesus Christ. Only he can save you. And in light of that, I think another simple takeaway is what we just studied in verse 6. That our character would match our proclamation as ambassadors for Christ. There's a reason why I set red 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Helping you to understand the significance of all this. Remind you what he said there again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
And then in verse 20, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making appeal through us. Did you catch that? To some degree, I, I think the preacher has a little bit of an advantage. A sinful world expects that a preacher of God at least has a lifestyle that matches it, right? Should. When they often ask me my occupation, I'm saying, well, I'm a pastor of a great group of people who love Christ. And it's interesting to me, their response can be one of two ways. Either they're confessing, please forgive me of what I just said and all the cuss words that I just shared with you, and they're, they're trying to get right before the preacher, pastor. My typical response is, oh, I expect you to do that because you don't know Jesus. Which, by the way, leads me into the gospel. Or, it causes them to say, I believe in Christ too. I love Christ. May that be your testimony. As you love on people, interact with people, may they see Christ living in you. So when the message of the gospel comes out, they can easily point to the living example in front of them that this is what it means to follow Christ. I think those are two takeaways that we can take away this morning, just allowing that to pierce our souls. There's many more the Spirit's going to do in your own soul. We'll let him do that for you. But John the Baptist, the forerunner, who makes clear, makes the path smooth to receive the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for the morning and for the joy it is to come to study, to worship, to fellowship, to meet people. Father, we are humbled by this section of Scripture as it examines our own profession and our own way of life. We thank you for your appointed men the ones that you've saved, in particular the man, John the Baptist, who is considered from our Lord's own words as the, the greatest man to ever live. Of course, that's an association that he was the forerunner of the one who's to come to give grace and the mercy that we need. And so we thank you for the fact that you continue to redeem us and sanctify us, and cause us to walk in your holiness. May we pursue what is right and what is good and what is holy. May we continue to be transformed by the renewing of our mind around the truth. So in turn, when it's time to speak, we herald the King. We are ambassadors of Christ, proclaiming to every man, every woman, every child, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we love you, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com 
slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.